Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're joined by Thomas Hayden Church of HBO's Divorce and Randall Park, star of Fresh Off the Boat. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Here with Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. A little later, you'll also hear Vulture writers Maria Elena Fernandez and Alex Jung chat with Fresh Off the Boat's Randall Park. But first, we're very excited to have Thomas Hayden Church, star of Divorce, here with us today. Thomas stars as Robert, husband to Sarah Jessica Parker's Francis, on the HBO show created by Sarah Horgan. Divorce follows the married parents of two as they navigate the logistics of getting a divorce. It's really funny, and Thomas is particularly hysterical in it. Hi. Hi. Quick question. Did you hear me knocking 20 minutes ago? Yeah, but I was doing my thing. Oh, okay. Well, Lila was downstairs doing her thing in the bathroom. Right. So... I was forced to take a shit in this coffee can in the garage. Just wanted you to know. Okay. Well, I may or may not have actually taken a shit in this coffee can, the point is well made. Equal time in the bathroom. All right. Please. Yeah. This is the exact computer I bought my daughter in May. Oh, yeah? And she claimed she was only going to use it for art and schoolwork. (laughs) And it is a 24-7 Animal Jam hotspot. That's all she does is play Animal Jam on it. What is Animal Jam? It's a a multiplayer game where you can create characters and you buy and trade crap. How old is your daughter? She's 12. And my other daughter is seven, and she just watches. She just watches my 12-year-old play. <laughs> so when I was your daughter's age, I was really into Wings, the TV show. Oh, I used great. I watched that with my dad. You were, oh, okay, right? with your dad. And that was one of your first kind of major roles as an actor. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. No, it was... Uh, I moved to L.A. in early 89, and just... You know, I really, I didn't even set out to be an actor. I, I wanted to be a voiceover guy. And because that's what I worked in radio. And then I, I had voiceover agents in Texas. But I had done some acting in college. And uh, I went to an audition with a buddy of mine who was an actor for a, a, a movie that was casting in Dallas. And I, I got a role. It was an L.A. casting director. We shot the movie in Missouri. But the guy was like, look, you know, I think this might be pretty interesting trail for you to follow. I mean, if I can kind of cut some stuff together with the producers and I can kind of get it to a few people, would you be interested in maybe coming out and taking some meetings? And so he did that. And I, you know, a couple of months later, I had some buddies that lived in Long Beach and uh, California. So I went out and I hung out on their couch for about a month and just took meetings and really just within a couple of months I got cast on a lead in a TV movie 
And so I made enough money off that really to pay my expenses for the rest of the year. So I just, I got an agent off of getting the TV movie and I was cast in an episode of Cheers in September of 89 and uh, that led right to Wings. Uh, The great James Burroughs, legendary TV director, was directing the episode of Wings, Cheers I was doing and he was directing the pilot for Wings and he brought those guys down to watch me in rehearsals on Cheers and they invited me to come and audition and ultimately that role, the the character of Lowell, was sort of a an amalgamation of, of three different characters that they had in the pilot. And then I was on the show for six years. You were still pretty new to acting, like you said. So to start out in such a high-profile show on a major network, I mean, what was that like? Was it intimidating? Was it overwhelming? You know, I think that I was too kind of uncultivated and unevolved to really understand it immediately was a very fascinating kind of learn as you go job, you know, learn on the job kind of a situation. And nobody else really, they didn't know how inexperienced I was. You know, that wasn't something that you just walked around with on your sleeve. You know, I was really terrible in, in, you know, in, in Equus in college. You know, you know, you don't walk around saying those things, you know, and if anything, People, and I'm sure it still goes on today, although all you got to do is Google somebody and you can find out what the truth is. But then I think people did sort of fabricate resumes, and I didn't. I didn't even know enough to do that. It's like, why? I should put some David Mamet plays on my resume. You know, I didn't even know to do that. I just, I was so green. And maybe that was sort of refreshing because when I would go in to audition for casting people, I think that. Even though I was 27 when I moved to L.A., or 28, actually, I think that there was a complete lack of, of, of sort of like 20s precociousness because there were so many. I would go to auditions and, you know, and, and the guy next to you is doing, you know, like, you know, warm voice warm up and stuff. You know, and there was a, a culture of this is what I've trained for and this is what I went to school for. And this is and I did theater and I've done Broadway and off Broadway, and I've won seven Obies, and you know, and you know, and there was just—it really was. Even in L.A., there were so many trans, so many New York actors that were in L.A. But uh, no, I, I never really was intimidated, and I worked with. They were actually a lot of them were out in New York. In fact, everybody was. I think Crystal Bernard lived in L.A. I think Tim Daly was by coastal, but Stephen and David and Rebecca and Tony. They were all mostly New York actors that would come out for, you know, in in those days, pilot season, which, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about a dinosaur. I don't think there is one anymore. I think that that used to be it was in the spring. It was like January to early April is when all television was cast, you know, and then you would you would go and shoot the pilot. And if it got picked up, you would start production probably late, mid to late summer, depending on if it was a one hour or a half hour. Yeah, we still have the upfronts, but it doesn't seem like yeah, they're as big of a deal anymore. Those are just the announcements right. in May and in, Jan- or in January. They have the mid-season, whatever. You know, like our show, I suppose we were at the upfronts in May, and we had already completed our whole first season. It's more so, of a formality in a I way. I think it is. For advertisers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, you've obviously done a lot of film work as well since, you know, your early days in TV, and divorce is kind of... The first series you've started in quite a long time. Um, 20 years. 
you had met Sarah Jessica Parker on a previous film, is that right. correct? Smart People? Yes. And what was your conversation like with her about, you know, this show? Because um, as I understand it, she approached you. She did. Um, we, get, we hit it off great on Smart People. Um, we had a lot of fun promoting the movie. And, uh, yeah, it was at the beginning of last year. She reached out to me, you know, it said, you know, which was flattering, and said, you know, would you consider doing this with me? Um, obviously, you need to read it. When We need to have some talks about it. But, I, you know, that's what happened. I, I, I read it. I had a lot of ideas. And we started having, you know, calls with Sharon Horgan and Paul Sims and SJ. And I realized they were they were willing to be very collaborative, straight out. It, there was there was not going to be any formalities or any sort of corporate navigable waters that that we that had to that I had to be concerned about. It was really it was it was them and me, and they they did exactly what they said they would do. They sent me a new draft of the script. Um, and it, it was, you know, it, it was an, in an evolved state after our talks, and I, I felt great, you know. And I remember Sharon telling me, we will take all of your ideas. I remember her telling me that in the first call. She's like, we want all your ideas, and we will take all of your ideas. And, and they, they, they backed it up. That must be pretty unusual to... Now, when you're almost 30 years in, people know what to expect from you. Mm-hmm. They, they know... They talk to other people that you've worked with, and and I've always, if if you're a punch the clock individual, that reputation will get out there, way 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 before now. You know, at my age and at where I'm experience was, and and so then people adjust their ex- expectations based upon talking to other people that you've worked with, other studios, you know, and they're like, Tom has a lot of ideas. He's a, a spontaneous guy. He's, like, he's an improvisational guy, and uh, if you want that on board, then he's he's willing to bring it. And typically, um, if somebody is not willing to do that, then you, I, you know you find you just sort of modify. I did a film, Killer Joe, that was based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, uh, you know, author's play, who happens to be one of my co-workers on on divorce Tracy Latz you know William Friedkin uh, directed the movie and this was Matthew McConaughey and myself and Emile Hirsch and you know and a lot of really great actors Juno Temple you know he told us straight out look I think the play is exactly where it needs to be and Tracy did the adaptation to this uh, the to the screen and and even McConaughey accepted that, and and, and because the script was excellent, and the characters mm-hmm. were very carefully crafted, it was a, a, a play that Tracy had written in the '90s, and, and and it had evolved through, you know, different iterations throughout 20 years, different you know, uh, 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 you know, runs in different you know, in Chicago and New York and London, so. It, 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 they felt that it was exactly where it needed to be as far as being filmed. And that was an example where I'm not going to argue with William Friedkin uh, about, you know, <laughs> I want to improvise a, a, a Academy Award winning director. You know, so you just mod, you modify mm-hmm. to, to, to the circumstances. 
you mentioned uh, earlier that this is your first series um, in 20 years. Yeah. why has it been so long? I mean, were there? I'm sure you had opportunities to do other television. Were were you just not seeing the right kinds of projects? And what was it about divorce that made you say, "Okay, this is the one that's worth going back for"? Uh, there there were other worthy uh, opponents, uh, <laughs> but an upon a friendly opponent. Um, <laughs> you know, like in a chess match, uh, you shake hands at the end. Um, just wasn't the right thing at the right time and and especially after sideways i really wanted to dedicate myself to to writing and uh, you know doing feature roles because in the 90s it was almost uniformly uh, uh, defined by television that's pretty much all i did for 10 years you know i really whenever i got clear of television which was about 2000 I really just wanted to focus on writing and producing and, and directing, which I, I had opportunities to do that. And then Sideways came along, and it really opened up a lot of opportunities. But you know, but it, but it was it was Sarah Jessica Parker, and it was HBO, and and, and HBO is a really cool place to do it. So, <laughs> were you familiar with Sharon Horgan's work? Not or? at all. Okay. Not at all, and and in fact, whenever we did it, the first season of Catastrophe hadn't even aired. So, oh wow, yeah, but she was known oh. in the UK, right? Um, she had done, uh, I, I think, a, a number of other shows. Pulling, yeah, yeah, she had done a number of other shows in the UK, but she's a very self-deprecating individual, and you know, when I when we when I first met her, and we would talk about what out, you know, the other things that she had done in the UK. She was like, there's no reason you would know about it. There's no reason you would know about it. You know, it's insignificant, culturally insignificant. But I think Catastrophe is really starting to gain some momentum, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's very beloved. Absolutely. Um, you know, this show, even though I, I was familiar with Sharon Horgan, I wasn't expecting it to be so funny. Mm-hmm. And the humor is almost has this goofy sensibility that I really love. Goofy isn't quite the right word, but right. like kind of... You know, you expect it to be really serious, and then all, all right. of a sudden, something really ridiculous is. Yeah, said. And, and and that's what I I think everybody's sort of mission statement uh, was that mm-hmm. that we wanted it to be compelling, but we wanted it to be completely unpredictable. And you know, and Sarah Jessica and I were absolutely unified, and not to say that everyone else was opposed to it. But she and I, as the principal characters, sort of the titular characters, because we're defined by our divorce throughout the series, we wanted to have just a human experience. I mean, really authentic to moment to moment what they're going through, the, 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 the complete unknown and unforeseen and the challenges and the absurdity of, you know, of, of having confrontation and lawyers and, and you know and, and all of the challenges that divorce brings and then you have to both sit benignly at your daughter's basketball game and, and act like everything's cool but we really wanted it, it to be an authentic mix of what a family is going through as they're sort of you know molecule by molecule being torn apart Robert your character and Francis Sarah Jessica's character they're already at a point in their relationship where they have grown apart. Um, although as the episodes go on, you can see glimmers of the warmth that must have existed before all of this stuff started to happen. Um, but did you guys sit down, you and Sarah Jessica, and like develop a whole backstory for what their relationship would have been? And is that something that we'll maybe see at some point during the show? 
it wasn't something that we really mapped out, but it was absolutely, I would say, the topic of, I dare say, hundreds of hours of conversation. <laughs> uh, and not just with she and I, wow. with, with, with us, with the other actors, with all the producers and writers, especially before we did the pilot, a lot of conversation about who they were professionally, personally, you know, our previous relationships. What was that? What what was what happened there? Was you know, and how did that end? And we haven't really drilled into that as much as we have, quite frankly, with the other characters. You know, we know, you know, that the the other women, you know, what their other marriages were like, and and we sort of learned learned. I think in the first season, we kind of learned more about everyone else before Robert and Francis launch into the divorce, we kind of learn more about everybody else than we, than we really do about, our, about the, our characters. Because we're so, it's just a race to keep up, right. you know, with right. all the lawyers coming in and everybody has a commentary and trying to protect the kids and trying to keep, you know, the battleship from completely breaking up and sinking. How would you describe Robert and who he is when we first meet him. Like, what is your sense of this He's a type? lost guy. Uh, you know, I mean, she kind of blindsides him. But it's, it, but, but it's a blindsiding that, to some extent, he's accountable out of just emotional kind of desertion. I think that, that uh, somewhere along the way, they, they just started sort of drifting... And at varying times, May was like, hey, we're drifting apart. Or she, you know, hey, you know, come back here. I, I feel like I'm losing you. And, but I think that maybe with a lot of couples that end up in divorce, there is. There, there's a, a desensitizing. And they probably aren't aware, are aware of it because everybody's like, well, I don't want anybody. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But along the way somewhere, uh, you're too far apart. And, and you just can't get the life the, the lifeline back over there and and then sometimes you know there's a, a one of my favorite lines in a Crosby Stills and Nash song Southern Cross we never failed to fail because it was the easiest thing to do and I think a lot of times in, in at some in, in divorce that, that that's what happens do you have a idea of what his personality was like maybe when he was younger um you know we talk about not too many years prior to the story beginning he was a Wall Street guy, like like a mid-level money manager guy, made a six-figure salary. She was in corporate public relations, made a six-figure salary. You know, they they met probably in their mid to late twenties. Um, maybe it had like fairly significant relationships, as much as you do in in your twenties. And then met, and it was just like a great. You know, it's like they were ready. It was a it was mm-hmm. a it was a great emotional converging point for both of them, and they fell in love and they had a life together for a number of years, and then they had their first child, and then they had their second child, and and so when we meet them, and you know we sort of always imagine Robert to be around fifty and Francis to be a bit younger, that you've kind of already explored most of your potential. You know, emotionally and professionally, by the time you're in your late 40s or you're 50, you've already made a lot of good and bad choices, and you've kind of settled into where you think you are going to be uh, to have a productive 
happy, you know, 20 more years or 30 more years. And that's where the story starts that she's like, this is not a good choice. This, I thought this was a great choice 20 years ago, and this is no longer a great choice for me. You know, this is the kind of show where I feel like people are going to identify with in a lot of ways. Just My coworker was saying just watching it made him kind of question his own relationship and mm. kind of brings up these things we don't talk about right. a lot. I'm curious what it felt like for you doing it. I, I read in certain interviews that you talked about marriage and how, you know, when marriage came up in, in your own life, sometimes that was what made the relationship go downhill. And what, what are your, why do you think that is? And has this show kind of... I've never been married. Uh, I've been engaged a few times. And, you know, in those relationships, it seemed like as soon as Will You Marry Me was introduced into the dynamic, and, and unfortunately in those relationships, it did, it's like, it, it wasn't so much start going downhill, but it immediately brought a whole bunch of other sort of expectations and challenges I think on both sides are like, do you really mean it? Do you, is mm-hmm. this really what you want? And do you really mean it? And is this really what you want? Are very hard questions if you're having some instability in other areas like family or career. You know, if you're having other instabilities around, is this really what you want? Do you really mean it? Um, it can it can be troublesome, and and both of those engagements ended. For that very reason, you know, looking down, you know, five years, ten years, are are our goals going to be? Are they going to stay the same? And and I think that with marriage, people go ahead and pull the trigger, and 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 get married after a year long relationship or two year relationship, and you know sometimes those those questions get answered in a very positive, loving way, and sometimes. You know, those questions become bigger and bigger unknowns and uncertainties. And, you know, it's just it's so individual and so circumstantial. Um, and I have to admit, I, I, you know, my friends that have longstanding uh, marriages that have worked, it, it's like I'm really, really proud of people that, that stay in there. You know, they, they stay in the box they, and they, they manage to work out. Whatever comes into that box, they manage to work it out. And, you know, you see things, and it is unfortunate in this culture and in our society with, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, where whatever has been discordant in their relationship, it just turns into such a media sensation. And it's almost like as soon as something's revealed, they have no chance whatsoever uh, of, uh, of that marriage surviving. And, and sometimes there's been other sensational examples where people did work it out. You know, that some power couple, they, they did work it out. And, and, it, and I always feel like, you know, because it's all so sensational and so, like, so social media frenzy, sometimes it feels like there's a little bit of a letdown, you know? It's not as newsworthy when people make it or when a marriage survives or a relationship survives and that they just go quietly off you know, with the rest of their lives and like, you know, and whatever, get, re, you know, re, renew their vows or whatever, you know, it is that they do to, to give their relationship a chance to survive. And, and People and, love gossip. Oh, yeah. gossip. They, they love, they love misery. Yeah. You know, they love pain more than happiness, you know, and 
I'm a middle-aged guy and I stay away. I'm not involved in social media at all. But I can't look at my phone without immediately being just, you know, fish hooked into it. And, you know, so I'm certainly aware of what the culture is. You know, I'm sorry that Kim Kardashian was robbed, but it's like, you know, her pain is is as newsworthy as the vice presidential debate. You know, something that's going to determine the leadership of our country you know, and I really, I, you know, that's a terrible traumatic thing for her to have to endure. But it's like, you know what I mean? That it's yeah. the, the, the social media frenzy, the media frenzy, you can almost, you can't make a distinction. Obviously, TV has changed enormously since you first started doing it, since Wings was on. And just as, as a viewer, somebody observing it from the outside and writing about it, the landscape feels so different um, than it did 20 years ago. But as somebody who's on the inside of it, creatively, does it feel like a different process to you? Do you feel like going back to it like, wow, this is television is a completely different you know, monster than it was when doing Wings? Or, or does it in a lot of ways feel the same no it, it mostly feels the same it really it always comes down to working through the scripts with the producers and the writers and the director and I mean the only thing that's for me that's different is that and I think I commented on this early on is that the TV that I did in the 90s was very sitcom formulaic and what we're doing is clearly not that however even then it was just how do, how do I make this authentic? I mean, it was mostly funny. We did have some dramatic moments here and there on Wings and then Stacy, but but it was. I just want to make this. I want to make it honest. I, I just and and I and I always felt like everybody was pursuing that same, regardless of the formula. Everybody was pursuing the same honesty. You know, if, if you're going to get a laugh, get an honest laugh. Don't get a laugh because you said a word wrong or you made a you know whatever a fart noise you know and it's the same thing with divorce even though i consider it to be a balance of drama and comedy it was always just let's just find the honesty in in moment to moment in these in these people's story there's going to be moments where it's going to be uncomfortable to watch and and i mean because of the intimacy because of what whatever pathetic or unpleasant or you know, the, the sort of sexual or emotional gravitas of, of what's happening, you know, the, the, you know, it's like, wow, this has gotten really personal and I don't feel comfortable right now. That's great. I'm all about uncomfortable viewing. <laughs> I am. Well, thank you so much right. for your time, Thomas. You're welcome. Yeah, great. thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> And was the was the mustache? It looks like it was maybe real because I. It see was absolutely. <laughs> <real>. <laughs> shaved it you off. Shaved it off. They told me I was wrapped and I was going home to Texas the next morning. I shaved it. <laughs> it's in a sewer somewhere in New Rochelle. <laughs> but uh, all right, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. And we never failed to fail It was the easiest thing to do You will survive being bested Somebody fine will come along Make me forget about loving you In the Southern Cross The Vulture TV podcast will return in a moment But first, a word from our sponsor 
Maria Elena Fernandez recently traveled to Taiwan to join Fresh Off the Boat on set, where they filmed the season three premiere of the show. Here, Maria and Alex Jung chat with star Randall Park about the experience and what it's like to return to the homeland as a first-generation American. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're very excited to talk with you about the new season of Fresh Off the Boat and especially the premiere episode, which airs uh, later today. And uh, yeah. big deal for the show to go and film in Taiwan. And if you mm-hmm. could tell us a little bit about the episode uh, for our listeners, if you could tease a little bit about what they can expect. Sure. Well, the episode is kind of a, a continuation of the uh, season two closing episode. My character, Lewis, uh, has his uh, brother over in Orlando, played by Ken Jong, And uh, his brother is getting married, it turns out, to all of our surprise in Taiwan. But we get into a huge fight, and uh, he basically disinvites us and takes Grandma with him back to Taiwan uh, to proceed with the wedding. And uh, I want to kind of set a good example for my sons uh, and show them that, you know, the bond of brotherhood can never be broken and, and that the love is still there for Ken. So I take the family, and we all make the trek to Taiwan. And uh, when we land in Taiwan, that's when the episode begins. And uh, we actually shot three days of the episode in Taiwan. It, it, it explores a lot of themes that I think you don't find uh, on, on TV. Uh, definitely not to my memory uh, as far as themes regarding, like, uh, the immigrant experience and, and kind of uh, when, you, when you leave your home country and, and, and create a life in a new country, how you kind of end up not belonging to either. It made me definitely think a lot about my own family and uh, my, and my parents in particular and then their experience. Uh, I always wondered as a kid why we, we rarely, you know, we went to Korea when I was really young, but after a while we just stopped going. Hmm. And my parents haven't gone in, in, in ages. Hmm. And, uh, and I think, uh, and I never really understood why. What was it like for you when you went to Korea? Well, I, I went when I was like, Ten years old. It was actually a kind of a traumatic trip for me because uh, I, I remember like feeling completely out of place. Uh-huh. I mean, at the time, Korea was very different than it is now. Uh, you know, it was uh, a lot more country, right. you know, and 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 a lot more uh, third world, I guess. And and uh, I remember, you know, there not being toilets. There, it was like holes in the ground, and and we'd like wash ourselves with buckets. And the food was just like completely foreign to me. I mean, I was I was born and raised in, in Los Angeles, so it, it was strange for me at the time. Right. Growing up, um, did you speak Korean and eat Korean food at home, or or was your family more Americanized? We ate Korean food for sure, um, mm-hmm. but I would say my family did veer more towards the uh, Americanized. Like our fa- my parents were more Lewis's than Jessica's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> growing, growing up, <laughs> they had, you know, non-Korean friends, and they, uh, we, we'd go to Koreatown, at like, maybe, like, once every other week, you know, just to go to the supermarket, the Korean market, to get food. But uh, outside of that, it was uh, pretty much a, kind of a standard Los Angeles, you know, kid upbringing. Yeah. So they learned English, and you spoke English at home? Yeah, I mean, they would speak Korean to me, too, but I would respond in English for the most part. It was kind of this mix of Korean and English that they'd speak to me. 
Right, and, that classic uh, Conglish. Yeah, the Conglish, that's yeah. right. It's a really jarring experience, I think, to go back uh, to your parents' home country when you're young, because I don't think you really understand the significance of it in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, totally. And but But I do think it does have a different value when you get older. So, like... You know, even in the show, I think that the children have a vastly different experience or relationship to going to Taiwan than their parents do. Yeah, for the kids in the episode, it's a, it's kind of like a vacation almost, a trip. Right. Uh, but for for the parents, it's like no, no, we're we're going back home. You right. know. Right. And and they and they see that for their kids as well. Like you're going back home too. You know, but the kids can't conceive of this being their home. And it's not sort of. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not. Uh, at least in their like, you know, life experience, it's 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 a it's a foreign place to them. And I think the the deep thing about the episode is we slowly learn that it's kind of becoming a foreign place to to the parents. You know, it's it's they they've become a, a more detached than they thought they were going to be. And I feel yeah. like immigrant parents too. Like uh, you know, there's this idea that uh, they sort of crystallize where the country was when they left and their idea of like Korea or Taiwan or wherever will be this idea that they had maybe back in the eighties or seventies when they first immigrated and the country itself has changed drastically, you know? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I know that's the case for Korea, at least when we were kids and I, I, I saw a glimpse of my parents' Korea, but now today it's, from what I'm hearing, it is such a different place. It's It's the future. Yeah, yeah. There's like Wi-Fi everywhere you go, and technologically advanced in so many different ways. But yeah, I, I, I imagine that my parents have no connection to it right now. Randall, one one of the things yeah. we touched on when when we were in Taipei was about how you watch the show kind of through the lens of the of the boys because you can really relate to them. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Well, I grew up in in West LA, uh, kind of close to Culver City. And uh, when I was growing up, it was extremely diverse. I, like if you look at my group of friends, you know, it was uh, just every race represented. It was different from Eddie's experience in the show in that way. But I did identify with Eddie's character and on the show in, in that you know there weren't a lot of other Asian kids in our group, at least. And uh, in that premiere episode, like the lunchroom scene where he comes to school and he, he opens his lunch and, and all the other kids freak out. I mean, that's like a, that, that happens to me. You know? Oh, yeah. That's a classic uh, immigrant kid moment, I think. <laughs> yeah. I remember as a kid, I loved kimchi, you know. As yeah. a kid, it wasn't weird to me at all because it was in our house all the time. Like there was never a, a, a second when it wasn't, uh, that huge jar wasn't in our refrigerator. Yeah. And I remember bringing it to school and that just did not go over well at all. <laughs> it's such a strong, overpowering, <laughs> powering uh, scent. So yeah, experience like, like that definitely uh, uh, really kind of connected me to Eddie. And also, you know, the time, I mean, I grew up more in the 80s his kind of love of rap music and hip-hop culture that was definitely, like, pervasive when I was growing up. Maria, you wrote about this uh, beautifully in the cover story about when you went to Taipei. Um, It sounds like there was a lot of hectic production issues that they had to do just in terms of translation and making sure they got all the right 
uh, props and everything. And I was just curious to hear on your side, Randall, what you experienced in terms of, you know, flying over, I assume, jet lagged, shooting. What were the sort of challenges that you uh, faced when you were shooting the episode? Definitely, uh, and Maria um, talked about this, the heat and humidity was <laughs> un- unlike anything I had ever experienced. Yeah. It's, it's monsoon hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's a part of the show, too. I mean, I, I think it's in the episode, but we're just, I mean, we have to justify being sweaty all the time in the episode. <laughs> and and uh, we were, like, sweaty all the time. And then looking out at the crew, yeah, it was, this, it was a mixed crew. We had some of our uh, our kind of main uh, department heads, and they were kind of running their departments with the, these local crews. I don't think they had translators, as far as I know. Oh, uh-huh. uh, I'm sure there was like one or two uh, people uh, in the crew who kind of probably did the translating for every department. Yeah, uh, that's so what it, happened. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was definitely a, a, a hectic experience for the crew. Uh, as far as the the cast, I mean, just dealing with the heat, dealing with these locations where we kind of had to steal a lot of these shots. You know, we shot at the airport while the airport was operating. You know, we shot at yeah. these monuments while they were tourists kind of milling about. Oh, uh-huh. uh, well, yeah, even in the hotel, the people were checking into the lobby. There was a restaurant full on service next door. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. People were just <laughs> standing there watching. I mean, it was uh, it was. I was shocked that we pulled it off. I had never heard of a show doing anything like that. You know, ultimately, the, the rush of the excitement of being there and, and, and doing something that was so uh, monumental but also essential as far as the, uh, the storyline of our show goes, it was, it was just so exciting that, that all the challenges, uh, they were definitely worth taking. You and Ken have such a great chemistry on screen. We're great friends, you know. We, we've known each other for years. We've met... I think doing stand-up, like way back in the day, we have kind of different comedy energies, you know. I think Ken is is definitely way more kind of uh, out there and energetic and kind of puts it all on the line, and and I'm a little more reserved uh, comedically. And I think the the two styles kind of, they're they're fun to play with uh, and and to bounce off of each other. Yeah, he brings out a great, like, uh, straight man character in you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, you have Ken. All you have to do really is just react, and uh, <laughs> that's all I had to do. A lot of the themes that your character Lewis deals with in the episode have to do with this idea of, you know, like this question of what would it have been like if I had never left, you know, or if yeah. I had uh, sort of stayed in Taiwan. And of course, on the converse, that's what he was thinking. Uh, what would it have been like if I had gone to America? And I'm wondering, you know, like how you think about those questions maybe in your own life, too. Like, do you sort of wonder what it would have been like if you had been born in Korea and what your life would have been like? You know, not so much now, but growing up, I definitely would think about that, especially when I'd experienced something, you know, uh, challenges that, that or, or forms of racism that, that, that really kind of got me down or, or made me feel like, gosh, I, I, there's no hope for me in this situation. I, I, I remember definitely distinctly thinking, uh, why did my parents come here? You know, they, you know, they always say it was for me. They, yeah. always, they always say it was for their kids, and, and they put us in, in these situations where we have no control over over how how we're being treated that definitely would, would it was something I thought about a lot growing up there's a line in the show where Lewis says uh, and I, it's one of my favorite lines in the show where he's 
regretting having made the move to America, and, and he, he's telling his brother, we're the white people here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that is yeah. quintessentially, in a lot of ways, the Asian-American experience, and it is a very American experience. Definitely. Like, for example, I have friends who are Korean who pretty much spend their entire lives, or at least their adult lives, in Koreatown. It's almost like being in Korea, you know? Totally. And, and, they, and they have such a different view of what America means to them, because they're, they're in this kind of world where they're a little more protected, you know, from things that I experienced growing up, and, and, and they don't have the same uh, thoughts of, what if I was in Korea right now? You know, because they kind of are in Korea right now, because <laughs> uh, Koreatown in Los Angeles, is, is, it's, so, it's such a big, vast, thriving community, you know. So uh, it is interesting how even even here in, in, in L.A. or in New York or, or in any city with a thriving Asian community, you can kind of almost sidestep those, uh, those questions. Mm-hmm. I know you have a graduate degree in Asian American studies. I wondered why you decided to pursue that. Yeah, how did you get into acting from that? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was at UCLA... Uh, I was encouraged to write, like a professor there encouraged me to write. And so I looked into uh, kind of specializing in creative writing and with it in the English department, and I, and I got into that program. And, and uh, through that, I started writing plays. Meanwhile, like, like a lot of college kids, I was kind of discovering my identity and, and questioning things a little more. And, and uh, the merging of that uh, kind of happened when I, I just, me and a few friends decided to form this Asian American theater company on, on campus. And that's how we. That's how I kind of discovered acting for the first time. It was uh, while I was in college, and because we we cast our these play original plays that we wrote, and we'd need these small parts filled. We'd actually like take on these small parts, and and I just had so much fun on stage, and I just kind of kept doing it from there, um, while still kind of. Uh, you know, being immersed in, in, in academia and Asian American studies, and I, and I ended up going uh, into the master's program for Asian American studies at UCLA, in part because I was uh, passionate about it, but also because I, I wanted to keep acting in the theater group that we founded, you know. And uh, I'd say midway through my, my uh, graduate studies, I, I just kind of, I don't know, I felt like so much of... Uh, what we were talking about and in, in, in Asian American studies, I, I just felt like we were really in this bubble. You know, we we weren't really changing things in the way in which I felt like I could contribute, and right. in the way in which I wanted to change things. So, and I had just felt so fell in love with writing and acting. I felt like, oh, I think this is a way to do it. And uh, uh, years later I, uh, is when I kind of commit myself to acting. And, and it's just so ironic that I'm on this show now that uh, kind of merges all these interests that, uh, and totally. passions of mine. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty incredible. I was looking at your IMDb page, and you played a lot of doctors early on in your career. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, when do you feel like your big break was or like your moment when things sort of felt viable and like you could really do this the biggest one for me was probably veep uh even though i wasn't a regular on veep i was recurring and in those that for uh those first few seasons especially the second season is when i i was uh in it a lot more right danny chung uh, yeah yeah (laughs) playing uh the the governor danny chung and and it was it's just one of those shows that that's so respected and so uh just uh 
adored by the you know the industry and and, and the comedy community. It, it definitely like played a, a key a key role in getting me seen at mm. least, mm-hmm. within the industry. And and uh, and I, I'd say that was definitely a turning point. But you know, I it may it may slow down. It may, I don't know. You know, I, I just kind of go along with the ride because the ride is so unpredictable. Right. And also, I think just in general, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but it seems like at least there's a more of an awareness in Hollywood in casting to tell stories with more diverse casts. Um, do you feel like that's true? I definitely feel like that's true. I think the uh, the the consciousness of those issues has definitely seeped into the mainstream. I don't think the uh, full effect of that has been kind of realized yet. I think it's happening right now, and right. I think it's a it's a slow it's a slow process. But uh, with that being said, uh, you know there there's definitely a lot more opportunities out there. There's a lot more roles. I mean, I, I think the the kind of the next step is is creating you know keep creating more opportunities and more and more lead roles. I think that that's a, that's kind of a big hurdle, especially in the movies. Uh, but uh, I think it's I think it's slowly happening, and I think uh, I don't think there's any turning back at this point. Well, that's heartening. <laughs> I mean, that's my opinion, of course. You know, <laughs> I, who knows? I, right. you know, I remember in the what in the seventies or was it the early eighties? There was a lot of viewpoints represented on TV, especially right. Um, uh, and 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 I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened in the in the '90s. It just kind of. I mean, that the '90s we did get All American Girl, and that was uh, monumental. But it only lasted one point, short season. <laughs> yeah, it did. That's it. And then after that, it wasn't uh, for another twenty years until our show came along. But I'm confident that there's no turning back. I mean, it's the the it's, uh, the country is is in a different place now, and um, or or so I hope. I haven't gotten really too much flack, if any, from uh, the community, uh, you know, in regards to being a Korean American playing a, a, a Taiwanese character. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I mean, I know, I know, there's definitely people out there who, who are, you know, find that problematic, and I totally understand that, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and I get it. But I was wondering if that would be an issue in Taiwan. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I I didn't experience any of that uh, out there or get any inkling that it was. I, and I don't know if it's just because you know I didn't meet the people who would be offended by that, or if it's or if there's a, just a lot more of a pan Asian consciousness uh, in regard yeah. to entertainment out there. I'm not sure. Right. Um, what, what was your but, sort of yeah. thought process around? Because that's a really interesting thing about. You know, like, how, how much do we sort of subdivide this kind of representation of, like, you know, should a Korean-American, can a Korean-American, for instance, play a Taiwanese-American? Uh, was that, yeah. like, part of your logic or thinking? What was your logic or thinking when you were taking the role? It was a problem for me, for sure. Uh, and, and, and early on, I even talked to uh, the producers about it. And uh, I, I remember having that conversation with, I think, with Melvin and definitely with Eddie, because mm. Eddie Ed Fong was a part of the show, more a part of the show at the time. And right. and I remember uh, going into his office and just telling him, like, I, I don't know if this is right. Like, I don't feel right, like, playing this character. But he was just so supportive to me. And, 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 and the fact that it was his father that I was playing and then to get his kind of, his, uh, you know, I remember him saying, no one, no one else can play this part but you. Mm-hmm. And and I really took that to heart, and I think uh, 
you know, I kind of took that and, and, and held that close to me, in the, especially early on when I was kind of having trouble with that. But, you know, I still have a little trouble with that at times. I mean, I guess the goal is that, you know, eventually we can be at a place where we won't see white people playing Asian people anymore, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I guess Yeah, we're not, not there yet. <laughs> yeah, we're not there yet. But, I, you know, in an ideal world, you know... I, you won't see a Korean American playing a, a, a Taiwanese character, or especially an immigrant character. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafit. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.